0: Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming to our Sydney Ideas event, Light in the Illusion of Space. I'm Associate Professor Wendy Davis. I work over in the Faculty of Architecture, Design, and Planning and run the illumination design program we have there. It's great to see a number of people from the architectural lighting program as well as a number of people from theatrical lighting programs uh, in attendance tonight. We have a really interesting lineup and the structure will be um, such that we're going to have three quite brief 10 minute presentations by three experts in their fields. And their fields do all address light and the illusion of space, but from very different pr- perspectives. And then we'll have a discussion panel with four panelists. I might ask some questions. You guys might ask some questions. We'll just have to see where the evening takes us. So why don't we jump right in. Our first speaker is Michael Scott Mitchell. He is one of Australia's most acclaimed designers and has designed set and lighting for numerous highly acclaimed dramatic, operatic and other productions within Australia and overseas. He has also undertaken architectural design projects including the legendary Sydney Rockpool restaurant and Court Hotel in King's Cross. Michael joined NIDA as head of design in 2008, and became director of undergraduate studies in 2011, and in 2015 assumed the role as deputy director of NIDA. So, Michael, thanks for coming.
1: Can we dim the lights any more than that? Good, excellent. So I'm starting on a, what intended to be a black space and there's a good reason for that. Most of the images that you'll see tonight, some of you will have seen them from last week, but they're mainly images that Nick and I have developed or productions that we've developed together. And I guess that's a good starting point in that we are two designers that I think easily be said, speak is one and we think it's one when, when we're developing productions. I think on our last count there was something like 50 shows that we've done together, and hopefully the work shows that amalgam of a spatial designer and the intersection with light. We one of the productions that we did a number of years ago was the ring cycle in Adelaide, and I'm going to show you some of the images from that. Uh, and this black screen indicates the state that the opera I opened in with the overture to Rheingold, which was three and a half minutes, I think, of complete blackness. If you'd be interested to know that we had to have psychologists on standby for the audience as they uh, came out of the venue. We'll talk about that. We didn't quite get there, that was a suggestion. But into that black space comes an electric blue square with a person floating in midair. And that accompanies the remaining section of the Overture of Rhinebell. This conceptually was the arrival of Urba uh, and the bringing of water into the world. This is the model, of course. And as she arrives stage, this portal is illuminated, starting to define the theatrical space that we're going to explore. Again, in our vocabulary, this was called the Ryan frame. At this point, 20,000 litres of water were released uh, on top of the orchestra. And this <coughs> gave us another membrane, another defining wall, if you like, within that space. And there's the image flowing through the wall and beginning to be illuminated. Yes, Arguably, my, one of my favourite images. Of all of the work that we've done through that water. And there is the water itself. As you know, probably one of the most difficult things to light, and uh, we had to find a medium to put into the water that would actually catch the light. And then this is, again, looking at the model, but I think it continues this notion of how do you define the space in light, and really what this design was entirely about was the definition of planes and surfaces through light to establish the box that we were playing in. In fact, those three lightbox portals were the only things that were really cut from the, the production. And you'll see where we, how we replace them. But uh, a light box floor, which in this production was representative of the world of the gods. So, white light was the gods, blue light was water. That tracked off. And behind you can see another membrane, if you like, which was we called mist curtain. Unfortunately, this didn't finally make it into production. But I guess this is more <coughs> about a conceptual look at the space that was being built. So, we had water as the front membrane, mist as the back membrane, and a series of light portals between And this was the final moment of Ryan where the gods ascended into an exact duplicate of Herber's uh, electric blue box into the white box that was about 100. So I think you can start to see already that all of these elements are actually about defining objects and spaces through light. If i further, up, you can see that the space has been extended. We're revealing, in fact, we physically added a series of these portals and these were actually made of a stainless steel mesh. And we took quite a great deal of time to determine exactly what that mesh was so that it could work as a solid or a permeable membrane. And in fact, Nick had all of these fully loaded blood. And we're about to see, again, in our vernacular Brooklyn's office to run the model, the real thing. So, again, every single element is lived within or from, lit uh, through. So this is uh, the rejection of Brunhilde by Brooklyn. I guess, you know, one of the great things about this particular space which is elaborated Festival Centre is the depth of the space and, and that is something that we really wanted to explore. Uh, I think probably many of you know that this was an extremely expensive production, it was some 15 million in 2006. And, interesting enough, I can also show you a series of things that actually fitted within that space. But I believe the most potent aspect of the design was the empty space the delineation of that space, again, through various means of light. A simple device that Nick and I concocted while I was driving my car. A series of light blades, if you like, which you can't see the kinetic quality of them, but they were flow elements that came in the colour of the space. So literally, lines of light were intersecting and closing down the space. One of the objects that fitted within that space, and again, this is the the bar where the uh, Rhine is, not Rhine maidens, the um, Brunhilde and her sisters go a drink after a heavy day's work collecting the fallen heroes. Flame is something that we have both explored a fair bit. I mm-hmm. have a long history with flame, uh, starting with the cauldron, the city of Olympics. And it has a very, very particular quality the general manager of State Office of South Australia was concerned about why we didn't want to light the space with a little bit of silk with a light underneath. and then we were read for that. And this is relatively put on her rock and I think you can already see just from that shot, the quality of that flame and green space. Now we're jumping to, this is a production of Don Giovanni that Mick and I did when I had same director Australia, These are what I call whips, which are early renders of uh, computer-generated forms. But again, this was, I guess, a continuation of the exploration we were doing about how do you literally build a space with light. And these elements above were articulated forms that come out of the wall and float through the space and define space. And again, there were light lines of practically space. So it was entirely about how do we take a black box and how do we use light to define different modes and so I'm slightly more developed, but I think that probably showed us more clearly how those elements are starting to intersect and um, define space. So it's kind of deliberately abstracted, but using different forms of internally objects, light lines, Side light, top light, trying to get strong colour definition on the panel. And in our production, this was the statue. Somewhat abstract production, but there you go. And my son is a lollipop. Again, this is black and a much, much simpler affair. In fact, the first production of Jasper Jones. And it was again a small black theatrical space in Perth. And the entire definition of the space was through very, very simple elements that were lit very specifically. So a kind of ceremonial circle, if you like, was defined by like, pouring blue dirt onto the floor. But it's, it's playing off the fact that we are in a black space and that we can determine what are the elements that we're going to see within that space. And Nick will probably talk more about this, but this is absolutely at the heart of what we do in a theatrical context. And I think it's important to remember that there is nothing that we see in any of these spaces until somebody points a lamp or in terms of it's an object, in terms of it's an object. This is uh, an opera, in fact was the first opera that I did, which was sometimes again working with like Nightheart and Nick. And the opening sequence was this, which we used a laser uh, floor or a laser plane, if you like. Again, nothing literally defining the space other than a sheet of light. Let's say Elkirk found that very difficult to comprehend for a long time, not quite sure why. Perhaps it was the sheet of acrylic and mold that was So, this again, <laughs> not filler, not is the idea of a box, this time a perspective box, and we're going to do a whole series of illusionary things within that box through projection, through light, and rear projection. So this is the rear projection screen at the back of the space that has a photograph of the space has been introduced. There's the real the space starting to be living. And you can see it here, this factory film stuff is produced by projecting onto the surface of the set. I don't know how many of you know Golden Girl of the West, but it's essentially, in our version, was a spaghetti western. And I guess part of this then um, is about illusion and a debris to some degree, deliberately confusing the viewer. But really only now, and this is jumping in a fair way, we can start to really define, or well, the audience can define what the space actually. This is working with Nigel Janssen, uh, who's a critical director to work with. He was particularly interested in how projection could be used across the entire surface of that space, and in a variety of ways. And in line with the fact that it was aesthetic Spaghetti Western, the entire palette was monochrome, other than certain speed elements that we wanted to pick up. In the and in this case, it's the Anyway, it continues on in that, and I guess we won't get to it, but essentially that space starts to crack open. becoming coming in, many ways, more abstract. Uh, so it starts from the bar that gets floated, the roof it lifts up, the side walls open, and the rear part of the set drives down the front. So it's, it's, how do you manipulate a box to do a series of things? How do you use the surfaces that keep re- being being reinvented, as it were, for different purposes? So here's a simple example of flipping tables up using Watch Out to map into those tables and project onto. But I guess in conclusion, really, what all of this is about is a simple. Starting point for a space, whether that be a black box, whether that be a defined perspective box, and finding ways of manipulating. If you think back to the images of the ring cycle, that basic shell had to serve 16 and a half hours of opera. And I guess it is ultimately up to the artists that are that space to keep an audience engaged, find different ways of engaging theatrically and inventively within that space and ultimately that was done, A, through fantastic performances, but also through a clever variety of uses of light within the defined space. So the materiality of the space is absolutely critical, and a great deal of time was spent determining exactly what surfaces we need to sustain over that 6 hours. There you go. Great. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you, Michael, that was fantastic. Our next speaker is Nick Schlieper. He has designed for all major performing arts companies in Australia and works regularly internationally. He's designed lighting and sets for numerous productions for the Sydney Theatre Company, Melbourne Theatre Company, Opera Australia, and the Victorian State Opera. He has worked overseas on many productions, including for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre of Norway, and the Cape Town Opera. Nick has received six Green Room Awards, five Sydney Critic Awards, and four Helpman Awards. Let's welcome Nick.
2: Thank you. Can't pick up on a few things that Michael's already alluded to. Can you hear me okay? Take that as a yes. Uh, I often, I came to theatre lighting largely through painting for various reasons. And I very often uh, use the the parallel of the process of constructing a painting, particularly in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. using it as a teaching tool there is, of course, one very fundamental difference, and that's the starting point. It's the difference between starting from a white, usually, two-dimensional canvas versus a three-dimensional black space. And the black that Michael referred to is... It seems to be stating the obvious, but it, it is actually the clue to the whole thing. You start with an absence of light. Sometimes the... Relative absence of light actually is a much greater tool than the presence of large quantities of light, obviously dosed very carefully. The way in which light and a physical space intersect or interrelate in a theatre is probably the apogee of the mixture of these two forms, in that the whole process of designing for the theatre is aimed exactly at that. It's at finding a space that serves a text or an opera or a piece of dance or whatever the work is, but that serves it from beginning to end, that serves it all the way through its many, many facets. Once you have the built physical space on stage, even if you've got eight of them, in the course of an evening or, or even more, but once each and every one of those spaces is there, the only way to shift those spaces is with light. So I would say about 30 or 40%, obviously varies from case to case enormously, but roughly speaking, 30 to 40% of a the theatre lighting designer's work is doing just that, is manipulating the space. So it, it's actually the kind of given Bit of the process. There are a number of touchstones, golden rules. Some people refer to them as that are used to um, measure the success of a lighting design of any given piece of theatre. And three of them relate directly to the manipulation, uh, manipulation of space. Um, one of them, usually the first, the first of these in most people's books is simply in terms of illumination. Again, it sounds like the obvious how that space is revealed to an audience is absolutely critical. If you think of any of the pieces of theatre that you've ever seen, how strong is your first, or weak is your first impression of the beginning of that production. Whether it was something that was revealed to you by taking away a curtain, so it's you know, it's more of a surprising reveal, or whether it's something that we're sitting there in a dormant state in full view of the audience while everyone's coming in and finding their seats, that is then brought to life. Those first moments are really critical. You only see what we want you to see, and right from the word go, you are shown it only in the way that we want you to see it. Theatre is an act of manipulation. Um, there's quite a strong school of thought that says that at its simplest, at its most fundamental, it's a bunch of people at one end of a room manipulating a bunch of people at the other end of the room called the audience. Light is possibly the strongest tool at our disposal to do that process of manipulation because it can not only shift your perception of what a space physically is, or looks like, or seems to be, it can also manipulate your emotions parallel to that process. So, when you come to the second and third of these five points, again, different people use slightly different terminology, but the most common one for number two is form. That that refers to two things. It refers to a series of techniques to make a person's face on a stage feel as present to the back row that might be 60 metres away in a theatre the size of the one that the Ring Cycle was in, Uh, and therefore keep that person both engaged and manipulatable, keep them accessible to the performance. Uh, The other part of this form yardstick, however, is all about the form of the built space on stage. It's, it's how you choose to exaggerate or downplay bits of it at any point in time. It's how you shift the power relationship between performers within that space by shifting the space around them without ever moving the actual set, for want of another word. I always think of it as a double envelope. There's the concrete physical envelope that is the set in which a performance takes place. Again, bear in mind, this hasn't been designed to perform any function other than to best communicate that piece of theatre to that audience. So it is all slanted towards that. That, That space I then think of as having a second flexible space inside it, and that internal space is made with light. So you've got the box, that is the hard bit, and then you've got the squishy bit in the middle, the bit that is endlessly manipulable, and that is, as I said, our best tool for manipulating an audience as well. The third of these points is usually just called atmosphere. Well, that kind of, again, goes without saying, but already you've revealed the space in a very targeted, carefully chosen way. You've arguably moved and shifted it around. And in so doing, you also create a whole series of atmospheres. This might change every minute or they might not change at all for an entire performance. They might not appear to change at all for an entire performance. In a typical, nowadays, rather old-fashioned production set in a living room, what is called in theatre a box set, which would be the same set for, let's say, a a two-and-a-half-hour-long piece of theatre by Ibsen, for instance, Recently, a common example. There'll still be, depending on who's done the lighting design, of course, anything up to 100 shifts of light. You, as the audience, may see only the one that begins and ends each of the usually four acts in that play. The rest of the time, your eye is being led around the stage, you're being told who to watch while the director is manipulating people into different power relationships, where one has the upper, one has the lower, one may be a watch, the third person may be a watching position. That's all supported by how those people are lit. So, it's not, it's, it's... That only works if you are manipulating the way the space works around them at the same time. It's extremely difficult to put one out of three actors on a stage into a position of greater power, apparent power, than the other two, if you haven't also shifted the perception of the space around that person. So there's all that stuff going on as well. Plus, more often than not, you're trying to tell the audience how they should feel about each and every one of those people. And that's done through a whole variety of, an old bag of tricks, but they're, they're actually terribly simple. It's about how you light that actor's face. It's about how much shadow, what kind of shadow, you're allowed to fall over that actor's face. It's very much to do with colour. All of these, well, it's not all. It's actually a very simple bag of tricks. But you need to think of them in terms of a piece of theatre almost as constantly shifting, constantly moving flux. If I've got my bit of it right, you won't even know it's happening most of the time. And if I've got my bit really right, I will have succeeded in dragging your sympathies from one person to another person to the third person. Or to at the very least have supported our particular take on this play, which is often comes down to who is in a position of power here at the moment. The fourth and fifth of these things, I've sort of just referred to the fourth one already, it's usually called focus. That is essentially. The last bit of the process I just described who's in power who's controlling any given moment of this piece of theater and the fifth is convention which is setting up a set of visual setting up a set of visual markers to tell the audience where and when and often why we are here um, and they usually by nature of the definition of the word convention, they're things you repeat throughout the audience. It's a kind of visual shorthand to help the audience along. So those, those, that last one doesn't so much depend on the relationship between uh, the, the light and the space directly, although obviously it, it can do under some circumstances. So the. <clears throat> Finally, the whole whole business about putting a piece of theatre on stage can be seen as a process of using light to manipulate the space. It's uh, far more achievable than it is in other applications because the whole design process starts off with that as its end aim. So the two things work very closely hand in hand. And it's obviously... um, an enormous advantage if you have somebody that you've done over 50 productions with in 30 years. Um, But it is often not so, it's not necessarily the case. And therefore, it's kind of really important to establish that relationship very quickly and very firmly. It's very difficult to try and manipulate the space when you're pulling in different directions. It is possible, it's far from desirable. Uh, It's a hell of a lot easier if if that approach has been with a clear end or set of ends right from the outset and you know what that range of options is. I think my 10 minutes is probably enough. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you, Nick. Our final speaker, before we go into our uh, panel discussion, is Branka Spega. She is an associate professor of psychology and director of undergraduate programs at the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology from Zagreb University in Croatia and a PhD in experimental psychology from Rutgers University in the United States. The primary focus of Branka's uh, laboratory is vision, how context affects our perception, how fragmented local information is perceptually integrated into a more global percept, and how aesthetic preference is related to underlying neural processing of visual images. Let's welcome Branka.
3: Well, how do you follow these two wonderful presentations? <laughs> um, I'll start first by thanking Wendy and Julian for inviting me here, and um, I, I, I do have to admit uh, I do feel slightly out of sort of like you know, place here because I'm not an artist. Um, there is a famous um, vision scientist, Bela Jules. He was from Hungary, and um, I remember uh, meeting him. And one of the first things that he said was that. Um, vision scientists, uh, all vision scientists, are essentially um, frustrated artists, and he said (laughs) that um, he himself, he studied art, and that he was an artist, and he was the one who discovered cyclopean perception, binocular vision stereopsis, 3D, sort of like, you know, vision at Bell Bell Labs in the 50s uh, and early 60s. He was also the pioneer of the first sort of like computer-generated art as well. Um, many vision scientists kind of disag- disagreed with, with Bella and, and don't, didn't want to sort of like, you know, admit that they'd rather do art. I am squarely in that category, and now I actually wish I sort of like, you know, did um, theater design and, and lighting and, and art. I do science, um, and, you know, uh, I do uh, surface perception, perception of color, um, um, and here we have on one hand, sort of like, you know, amazing demonstration of um, how light and how visual images can be created to great extent to communicate complex um, messages, to communicate complex emotions, to make you, um, as, as, as Nick was saying, uh, look exactly where they want you to look and to actually not notice what you're missing, <laughs> what is sort of like, you know, not there, because that is the trick, there is so much more going there. But uh, if you're just looking at the things that um, uh, these magnificent creators of, of sort of like, you know, intent and, and, and guidance through, you know, color contrast or motion or depth or I was just amazed by that, uh, what Michael was showing at the beginning when uh, people were entering in and as they were getting closer to you, they were getting smaller that is impossible. In the real world, if people are coming to you, they're getting bigger. And I was like, how is this possible? And, and that caught, caught my attention. And I was engaged, and I tried to figure out. I remember that he did mention that he used back projection, that was probably achieved by that, So things was kind of presented from the backwards, probably, hallway scene. I don't, I don't really know, but I'd really like to find out. So I think, and, and for me, that is, a, that is a great sort of, I think, uh, way in which sort of perception of, um, um, of these basic kind of visual qualities and, and then creation of these wonderful artistic achievements can intersect. When I started my PhD at Rutgers University, I came across this quotation by Eugène Belacroix, that I can paint you the skin of Venus with mud, provided you let me surround it as I will. So, so, again, saying that, and although I'm, you know, throughout my PhD and all of my wonderful scientific career, I haven't managed to accomplish anything like being able to take a piece of mud and make it look like skin of Venus. But I'm sort of like, you know, doing small steps in trying to understand how is it that we basically... um, can understand that, and maybe, and maybe uh, 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 guide the process of creation of some of those effects. However, it turns out that that um, really our understanding of even the simplest properties of sort of like you know perception of surfaces is quite limited. And I guess one of the benchmarks by which we sort of like know that it is limited, and very still in infant steps, is that we can't teach computers. recognize even surface color. I mean computers are really much worse than three-year-olds and two years old and even one year old in being able to tell whether the surface is white or black. As simple as that. And what is actually making sort of like, you know, this perception of surface properties and for me, for for, um, Nick and for Michael, light is this medium by which they can create this, this amazing artistic, uh, uh, you know, creations. For me, sort of like, you know, the light is stuff that visual system or the brain can use to extract the visual information from the world. <laughs> I would really very much like to understand all the, all the sort of like, you know, artistic properties and emotional properties and attentional properties of the response to those amazing images. But as a scientist, we have to, we can't start with, do anything with with things that are as complex as that. So we kind of like take one surface at a time. So that light that lets brain extract information from the external world, world, tell that, you know, thing is a face or a car or vase or something, really kind of comes in two components. One is a surface property and the other one is illumination falling on it. And that is actually computationally almost intractable problem. Uh, visual system or the brain doesn't know how much of that light reflected from the surface is part of the surface properties, how much is a part of illumination. That's why you actually can create anything on the stage, just because you actually don't know how to tell them apart. And uh, this is like a very, very crude. I really apologize after you know having seen all of those wonderful sort of like you know this, this is my handheld iPhone uh, demonstration of what you see in the middle it looks like a like like a black or dark gray square, and this is like totally washed out. But as I move the, 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 the dark spot, so that, black white, that is actually a white piece of paper, which is in the shadow. It is, it is projected by a projector, and projector has a black spot that is casting a shadow on that. And you see, it, 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 it can look white when it's outside of that shadow, but you just put it in a shadow that is created by like a simple slide that has a black thing, it, it, it turns into a black piece of paper. So this is, uh, I can, I can just sort of like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, um, again, if it, if it looks black. I'm now just moving that cast shadow. So this is just like one surface isolated in the, in the, in the room with the cast shadow. You move the cast shadow, it looks white. You put it back, so, so that luminance that is reflected from any given surface. Doesn't tell you anything about what the color of that surface is. It can be anything, and you can apply it in a chromatic domain as well. So it is, it is. Um, so the starting sort of like point of all of my studies is that uh, perception is of surface information that reaches the brain from any given surface that reflected light is ambiguous. And this is just another example. We see a surface that is essentially black as a glowing thing, like a moon is black, piece of rock, but we see it as glowing because this is just reverse of seeing white paper in the shadow, this is seeing black surface illuminated, and we see it as sort of like glowing white just because there is no reference point there. What we can, you know, get there is just one sort of like piece information. We call this technically Gelb effect, I do have to say my favorite Gelb effect was the one that I experienced in the War of the Roses that Nick was actually (laughs) involved with. And this is the, 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 I love the golden rain because there was so much induced motion and and everything. But towards the end, um, when the Richard III part started and the winter of this content, the snow started falling. And you just, even here, you just see these white snowflakes. This is the beautiful, brilliant snow falling down. But as, uh, and I was sitting pretty close I could see that whatever was falling on, on the on the um, actors' t-shirts and white sort of like you know clothing was actually black. And I was like, what, 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 "When did they become black? They looked white falling down." I actually, and you can see them down there on the bottom. They were jet black. I went and scooped like you know like a handful, took it home, treasured it until my husband throw them away this Christmas thinking I was just having some pieces of paper there kind of forgotten. So those were like black pieces of sort of like grey paper that just looked like a brilliant white thing because they were just suspended in the air with no relative information and perceived as white. And for me that was just, the, I, I talked about it for sort of like, you know, years with my colleagues and still sort of like, you know, <laughs> highlight that as amazing example of this sort of like, you know, simple perceptual property. So. Uh, This is another demonstration that I basically want to just just, um, um, use in order to highlight um, how the visual system is not a photometer. So we don't have just like like our cones uh, and rod receptors in our eye, they respond to the energy that is emitted by those surfaces, but not in a a linear way, on a one-to-one kind of like thermometer measurement way. And this is sort of like one demonstration that kind of like, you know, tries to kind of like, you know, highlight that, that principle. So what you see here is sort of like angled kind of surface that has lots of little pla- uh, you know patches on the right side and then the left side. We call those surfaces Mondrians, which is horrible. I think Mondrian would roll in his grave. Mm-hmm. but we kind of think we just have rectangular things here and there. They're superimposed. We call them Mondrians. They're not real Mondrians. But do you have a sense that these two um, uh, parts of this sort of like you know corner are illuminated by the same illumination or different illumination? This one darker and the one lighter. So most people would say this is a little bit washed out. Actually, if we can maybe just bring the light down a little bit, it doesn't matter. Would see the right sort of like you know the left side on yours would be in the shadow and the right side would be in the right in the in the light. And then when people are asked, is there a white surface on the right side? What would you say, is there a white surface there?
4: Yes.
3: And would be, is there a black surface there as well? And then on the left side, also, think, do you see like a white surface there, or nearly white surface there, or do you see a black surface there as well? The the, the way this has been constructed is is really like this. Left side contains only black to dark gray surfaces, only those, the white side, the, the, the side on the right contains from middle gray to the white. When you ask people the range of surfaces they actually see in those two sides, they're identical. They see it black to white everywhere. They interpret that relative darken- darkness of everything on the left as change in illumination, not a change in reflectance. So given that everything is darker, that is typically for all the surfaces that are in the shadow. And that reduced range of reflectances are actually expanded perceptually to perceive the whole sort of like you know scale that goes from black to white. So this kind of like scale normalization or expansion and contraction um, are basically these dynamic properties that we use in order to, to 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 really parse this essentially super ambiguous stimulus and uh, and use. But the the message here is that. It's not a simple process and it's not a photometric process. And algorithmically speaking, it is still hard to kind of like, you know, come up with all the steps that we can actually have a, a, a computer artificial system being able to do that. Um, I am, and, and then of course we have visual illusions when we, when we sort of like, you know, take, um, you know, illumination that we perceive in the scene is always used as a context for inferring surface sort of like color. So you have those two squares, A and B. And if somebody would ask you under the same color, you would probably say, no, 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 one is a dark check and one is a white check. And that B would probably be really like a white check, very similar to that sort of like, you know, white square under the A. If you actually physically take them out, what happens is that that B is actually as dark as A, but it's perceived in the shadow. So, if it is put in the shadow, that darkness associated with the surface is attributed to the lack of illumination. And you infer its sort of like, you know, color as being essentially much, much, much lighter than that. And there are a number of illusions from my PhD up until sort of like, you know, now I have done many of those. But um, I don't. Um, one thing that I sort of like, you know, do want to, uh, um, just the last sort of like team if I have time, um, is uh, in just a sort of like, you know, last few years, I have developed, uh, interested in, in aesthetics. And um, aesthetics of sort of like abstract images. And um, I do have a sort of um, uh, a preference, or at least like I'm, I'm, I'm on, a, on a mission. To try to see to what extent aesthetics or automatic uh, emotional responses to an image are just mediated by the simple physical properties of the thing—how bright the light is, what is its colour, where it actually is—so not mediated by your culture, not mediated by what you know about sort of like things. How, how much sort of like that first look at something can just grab you and determine your sort of like response to something. And for that, I, my guidance for that um, is just the really um, statistical uh, structure of the uh, differences in intensity in the natural scenes. And if you have this, if you look at this photograph of Henri cartier Bresna, you can see that there are darker areas and there are lighter areas. Typically, illumination parts of the scenes are going to happen over a large range. And sort of like you know smaller intensity differences, they are going to happen over the over the small scale. And what the visual system actually does, if you look at this picture with the center of your vision, you see this sort of like you know thing here. This is like pretty much like what our phobia sees. We process information at a very small spatial scale. Uh, there are no large intensity differences. This is what your periphery sees. And if you're probably looking totally eccentric, sort of like here where I am, your periphery can't probably differentiate between original image and the image that is just blurry. Periphery sees everything very, very blurrily. And um, If you now take a completely uh, abstract image, you take that photograph and you kind of scramble it, so there are no edges, there are no images, there are no faces, there is nothing. This is going to be the distribution of intensity that you have. This is going to be one where you only have a kind of blurry information, when you only have illumination component variation of that scene. And this is going to be at the bottom part of that scene when you only have a sort of like, you know, that small scale variations. And I've done uh, lots of sort of like, you know, studies and found that people actually prefer this, one, this natural distribution of those intensities. They find them more interesting. They, look, they, they make more eye movements when they look at those. They, they find them warmer. They find them, um, you know, there are systematic sort of like, you know, preferences for this sort of like, you know, what I call kind of intermediate kind of like level of complexity. I can take those essentially noise images and I can do a 3D printing and print them in surfaces. And what you end up getting is something quite amazing. You get end up you, you end up seeing surfaces that are totally organic. They look like uh, corals. They look like uh, bottom of the ocean. They look like waves on the sort of like you know surface. Because those sort of like grayscale variations, although look completely kind of random, they actually contain. They reflect statistical. Um, signature of our natural world, which basically says illumination differences are much stronger than sort of like differences that can happen on uh, um, pigmentation, that can be caused by the pigmentation differences of the surfaces. Illumination can vary million to one. Surfaces can only vary 30 to one. Black surface reflects 3% of light, white surface reflects 90, and that's it. As far as surfaces are concerned, that's all that you can get but with illumination you can get much more. So if you construct like a 3D surface that kind of like captures this this essentially 2D representation of intensity differences in the world, you end up getting actually something looking very natural. My next step is now to kind of animate those and to also take into account temporal scale. What is the time window over which illumination changes in the world? And that is actually quite slow. uh, actually, this is kind of like a natural sort of like you know way. This would be uh, uh, changing uh, large intensity slowly and changing small intensity sort of like you know very fast. This is just sort of like illumination change, like changing it very very sort of like slowly. Uh, and this would be if you change it at the fast spatial sort of like scale, changing changing every intensity next to each other quite a lot. So. Uh, and you, you can see that they look very different, and that the one that has a natural distribution of changes in the intensities also looks much more natural and much more organic. So this is now um, sort of like intermediate spatial statistics with intermediate temporal statistics. This is sort of like um, just illumination kind of information changing quite slowly, and this would be, this would be like really equivalent to the white noise. This is very fast change over very sort of like small spatial scale. And what you can do actually is um, you can now try to take this spatial sort of like distribution, which is natural, and manipu- change it sort of like very fast. And that looks very kind of aversive. It doesn't actually look, look very, very sort of like, you know, nice. Or you can have, you know, this one looks even more aversive. I should stop that and probably, sorry. That and that. And you can sort of like, I think, make this one actually much nicer. I don't know whether you can see it, by actually making it change quite sort of like slowly. This is not in the loop. So, anyhow, <laughs> so my kind of um, goal, just in a summary, is to try to exploit some of these just basically statistical properties of distribution of, of, of uh, illumination characteristics, large scale variations in the world, and surface characteristics to try to explain um, basically uh, ways in which in which we can understand very automatic, very semantic, unmediated sort of like response to that structure in you know emotional, aesthetic, uh, um, and sort of like other terms. So I'll stop there, thank you.
0: Thank you, Branka. I would like to invite the three Speakers to come sit at the front. And they will be joined by Joe Elliott, who um, was one of the big motivators of this evening. Jo has a Bachelor of Dramatic Arts in Technical Production from NIDA and a Master of Design Science in Illumination Design from the University of Sydney, where she is a current PhD student. Joe has been employed as a lighting designer on a variety of architectural and theatrical projects including the opening and closing ceremonies at the Sydney 2000 Olympics and productions at the Sydney Opera House. So, Anderson, can you turn the lights on more? Thanks. Um, In a fun, especially for those of us that do architectural lighting, fun little observation, uh, we cannot figure out how to turn these lights on. So we will be as adaptable as possible. We have two control systems, a uh, sort of a a wall-mounted one and a digital one, and they seem to work differently. So Anderson and I will be working in concert. I was hoping to ask the panelists a few questions, and then we can open it up to you guys. Let's start off with Michael. Um, I'm wondering if you can sort of speculate on uses for the sorts of effects that are currently used in the theatrical realm when applied to architectural and interior design.
1: Um, well, I guess a, a kind of working example of that was the Expression of Rockville, which we did in companies I had in used ago for vehicle design. Uh, and it's a point of contact myself as well, because we revisited years of development, but I guess in essence, this was a, an experimental company between an architect and an interior architect myself. And we set up a civilian life company of five years, and we were there to get a better understanding of how theatre and architecture in particular intersected. And this was actually, ironically, what was our first project together. Uh, in fact, I remember being in the office that we had rented. Galloway Street and the Cross, and the architect who has become very dear friend of me about six weeks. But what exactly do you do? And we formed a company. Anyway, we're um, in <laughs> But uh, I guess the point is that we approached that building in a very theatrical way. And I don't know how many of you have been there or remember it, Down the Rocks, but it was about thinking about the journey of the person that's going to die in that space. And setting up, uh, there was a long blue ramp that we established through the back of the building, and that was a sort of ceremonial, if you like, or parading ground for people entering that space. And I guess the other aspect of that was about how the, the space was to be And again, that was using architectural lighting, but using it in a uh, quite a formal way to set up digitally. Uh, light posts that marked out that ramp line, so that somebody entering the building uh, would be seen walking up at that kind of ritualistic mark like. The other thing that we used or explored in the space was a, a mirror and we were trying to get the sense of, you know, um, repeating almost infinity versions of the mirror as we walk into the space. So there are a number of things we we're playing with, but I guess the Again, the kind interesting thing for me as a theatre designer was designing lights for the space and actually having them built and kind of using my theatrical language and transferring that to the design of literally um, built objects. And this is a little aside, I do remember the excitement of my very first prop. Um, but I guess in essence it is about. How do you tell a narrative within a space? So it's applying the so theatrical uh, approach to resolving a space and applying it to a different context. So, in essence, that's, that's what we did in the I say that Nick uh, joined the woman myself in 2002. We did it originally in '87, and we reimagined how that space was used. And in fact, he did quite a good job of I mean, Well, of
0: that's fantastic. Speaking of Nick, um, I was hoping that you could give us some thoughts about how your knowledge of theatrical lighting could be leveraged to improve the way that we light architectural environments.
2: Um, I don't quite understand how architectural lighting works. Uh, I see so many mist-washed lost. Up the way are lifted, uh, that I don't quite understand the process by which it's arrived at. From my very very brief, tiny little forays into architectural lighting, I do realise that it's very much it seems to, me to be very much an art form. So it goes quite essentially against what I was talking about before, where the whole the whole final package starts. With Journey together And you do your level tests to make sure that you are shooting for the same thing. Whereas in the world of architecture, it seems to me, shout me out if I'm wrong, that often companies, other than the individual, and perhaps their part of the work, will come along and light a space
5: well and truly
2: after that space is conceived and designed and possibly already in the later stages of being built. It, at best, when it then works, it becomes a kind of final coat of paint on that room. It becomes a final bit of icing on the cake, rather than the two processes having started out at the same point in time we can handle and read the same, same end point in line. That's a long way of answering Michelle's question, which is I think the process is pretty back to front in the first place, and part of my deal. I can only stress though that I'm talking about my very limited experience of the process, and maybe if you yeah. on the outline, that's that kind of works. Um, in terms of more practical things, everything you have seen, everything we've been talking about in terms of the spaces on the stage, could be applied to writing real buildings, and uh, sure, there are some differences. There are, there are boxes that need to be ticked when you're like in real test architecture, that I will never, the things I will never have to worry about when I'm writing a set cathedral. However, I would eventually suggest I've got a whole lot more boxes that need to be ticked in very, very specific ways than somebody who's trying to develop this simple task the wider building to bring out its most
6: beautiful
2: character. So uh, John, I don't really understand why
1: there hasn't ever been that much of a mm-hmm. I just wanted to add something to what you've been saying. In the 30 years that we've been working together, I think we've discussed instruments probably about 10 times. It is actually about uh, a conceptual exploration of the work. And there is an assumption that each person will take their particular expertise off and develop and explore the right material, the right instrument, whatever. But it actually is at the heart, I think, what Nick was talking about in terms of the actual language, which is what is the concept, what is the narrative, what what are we actually trying to do with the space, and we will find a solution to how to achieve that, as opposed to, oh, we've got to look at a the we're going to space. It's, it's a fundamental difference,
0: so, Nick, I, I quite accept your criticism of architectural lighting. <laughs> Can't argue with that. But I'm wondering if you do have any examples of architectural spaces that have used, say, theatrical lighting techniques in an effective way. Yes, yeah, hold on. Let me push buttons.
2: Revealing the outrageous degree which
6: that was question. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: this is... An extraordinary mosque, you probably all know it. I didn't know it existed until mm-hmm. 48. hours. ago I went to my attention in Abu Dhabi. Uh, that was lived by a company headed by a man called Johnson Spear, I think who uh, I watched a couple of videos talking about this building. I feel really mean in the criticism that I'm about to make about this, because A,
6: from his video interviews, is clearly not only an extremely nice
2: man, but well, the poet
6: is clearly
2: somebody who thought very, very deeply and rigorously about how this mask was going to be built. Uh, anything other than a lightly tossed off piece of the work. Uh, and he also died at an incredibly young age very recently so. Very, it's very nice to give me The reason I'm picking that up is that, and this is the reason and that's to my attention, is, it's probably one of the best pieces of architecture around. And yet, I'm not sure if they're going to protect it. And please regard this comment through the eyes of somebody who cannot but help. I help but I look at
5: this as though that was a set that I was buying. This image, I'll talk a bit later about the rather shocking job of mine balls on the exterior. But just in terms of the exploding shape of this building
2: at a distance, as you'll see in
5: later photos,
2: the massive contrast between the interior niches and the exterior walls serves to make it look rather cartoonish in uh, great instances when so flat
5: on. But in these more close up views, the amount of
2: detail missing and gone and washed out inside that central archway
6: is kind of incredible. Uh, I mean that
5: thing, if you look at the scale of the figure
6: next to it, is very, very
2: tall indeed and it's obviously also very Pache John, maybe an awful lot of detail is going to be seen in these photographs. But I have to fake those kind of dimensions in what might only be a metre of genuine depth and say six or seven metres of genuine
5: height. Every one of those details and bits of forms work is very flesh and probably very, very substantial. It goes so against the grain.
2: Because my whole business is about making something that is vastly less substantial than this object look as though it, it would have taken very, very tall. So I mentioned enhancing the showing of line out the time. Uh, there's two really obvious problems here. Um, one is
5: that the labs to place too close to the base of the wall. Um, Assuming that there's no doubt not a lot of terribly good and kind of reasons why that had to be so.
2: But talk about taking the wrong horse for the course. I mean, why would you use a circular light source to illuminate the flat plane? It just makes no nice sense at all. There are any number of light sources around in the range for lighting the plane, and they are linear for that purpose.
6: So you wouldn't get all of that solving on the horse.
2: And there is a crasher example
1: of it. I'm sure that
2: that's worse in the photograph than it does in the flesh.
5: But the reason I think photograph is that also
2: it's, you
5: know,
2: it does do the job of expressing the relief on the outside of the walls very well, but it has reduced everything behind that front surface again to a very two dimensional of cover looking effect. That actually I have to say it's gone to of them have on my screen at time, but it's, it's exactly the same problem of using the wrong kind of house um, source this time obviously with material wall. And here is another instance of blowing out the contrast um, the the quantity and quality of life inside those nested columns on each side. Uh, I think just doesn't nothing for do the building at all. Mm-hmm. The final thing that talks about quite a lot is perhaps um, really mainly... could uh, be also described think, as a sort of theatre moving like technology 101, rather
5: techy moving cloud I across the outside of the building. Uh,
2: Apart from the fact that I can see every single light source, I huge. I can also see exactly what is inside those light sources. I can just about the bits for you. Maybe nobody else would regard it in that fashion. But my point really about this is the degree to which a building that has enormous space and nationality, dimensionality and beautiful ground and forms, is flattened out by using this kind of light on the outside of it. So, if I was a architect, I'd be a little bit sad about the grade for which it's being in flattened and skip the movie, because wrong. Okay. I think I probably have to say too much about
5: that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been the attitude of
6: <laughs>
5: uh, and I cringe every year when the director
2: and of the shutters and balls well in the town. But the worst part of all is the crimes committed upon this beautiful piece of eye But I also include this by the way at the end of Patchow Hunt what he has done to that mosque is so much more healthy than that.
0: All right. Let's get the lights back on, think. Okay. Um, moving on. Bronca, can you tell us a little bit more about the role of image structure in visual preference and how this um, impacts our experience of the visual world? Um, given that just um,
3: the visual system, um, there is this huge division called um, neural architecture. And also, uh, types of processing that is dedicated to central vision and peripheral vision. Central vision itself will be very small, it's perhaps maybe 10 central degrees. Everything else including the to the periphery. And now, brain uh, primary vision was dedicated to processing of those 10 central degrees, perhaps 80%. And then there
4: is sort of like everything else dedicated to the periphery.
3: We I think it essentially um, boils down to processing of um, information at a large scale and information at a very small scale. So what reading versus drawing and drawing or jogging or something like that, and you're not like really reading while you're jogging or running or something like that. So
4: that is the that, that is how we extract information from, from the external
3: world. And I do think that um, that is essentially Having to to, to have the direct route to to, to the visual reference of certain things, to visual ease by which we can process certain things. And I think this speaks to the good design. Design that can tap those um, differences between sort of like you know, um, so they don't want to be something small in the periphery that we need to read or something because we will not be able to extract it. There is no point in having something big, sort of right in the middle, because we can we can extract some of this. So perhaps well, sometimes you know, contrast that you're using in the center is too big, perhaps, and it's just flattening things it down, it's shattering things. It you 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 have vast machinery in the brain for processing of subtle, sophisticated, complex things, and you're just flooding it, when it's super strong and inadequate in you. So I think this is I think adequacy of of the design or um, sort of what you know, external and, and we have to. Mind in design, I guess, that visual system evolved in the external world over millions of years and biological visual systems. And I think we have to respect that structure in trying to actually make now artificial structure that can be processed efficiently. And I think this aesthetic reference is just going to be back on this efficiency of processing. And for that, there has to be uh, a lot of evidence as well. This difference is almost seem to, I think, address Difference is class of individual differences that we can observe in different classes of the kind of a visual systems uh, in people, for example, who suffer from autism or schizophrenia, even. Uh, there, you have uh, our visual system sees the forest before the trees, autistic visual system sees the trees and leaves, it never sees the forest. So having to sort of like, you know, make that or so like designing an optimal environment for that would have to be emphasized in forests really, which for us is there, you know, like very visible. So um, I think
6: there
3: is, there is, there are individual differences, there are probably even culturally specific differences, because maybe while having a long, exposure to certain type of environments, we're going to adapt. And again, visual system and brain are highly dynamic and adaptive, sort of like, you know, type like of processing mechanisms. So your processing characteristics are going to change. And it's going to be the best you can particular environment. And then you step out of it, you know, you kind of like, you know, can uh, experience after effects and have to readapt again. But I think these are kind of things that um, to me kind of like in this um, all um, uh, the potential, how understanding of just the basic, very very basic, you know, how can you see the world, how I can tell how far it is and what is this shape and I can lift it up and, and, and why is it about certain shapes easier to interact with than the others and so on and so on. So, so, again, it's very kind of a with very authoritarian, dramatic, main um, purpose of this vision, onto which all these other are joined, or set design or or or, or author or reading, you know, think it it it's 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 a plot. And I think we can, we can use some of those processes, but looking really at how they're done in the nature. Like the, the, the in, you know again we, we have been evolved to process information that has helped us survive over millions of years. And if you, if you just look at you know how is that information that is in to our survival uh extract in the nature that can sort of like think, form of our design mm-hmm. Of artificial uh, things. Because we can, we can predict by understanding how the visual system processes. And again, I think to me, the crucial difference is not color in isolation from motion, not barrier uh, in isolation from uh, size or, or anything like that. It's more like it just really boils down to differences in central and <laughs> central processing. It's processing of things at the large scale
0: and a small scale. And sort of looking at different points of time. That's fantastic. So, it's an ex- exciting future we have. <laughs> um, I wanted to sort of finish off my questions uh, by asking Joe. Joe, you are an artist in residence at the Rex Thorn Thorne Theater uh, studio, sorry, which uh, you're being hosted by the Department of Performance Studies. And your residency is really focused on sort of some initial explorations around your Ph.D. research. So why don't you please tell us a little bit about what that research is
4: <laughs> so, my idea is um, how can we quantify what we sort of have, what we intuitively, uh, well, most of us, I mean, <laughs> depending on where you sit, I very much come from um, an artistic background, um, so I, you know, like. For me, for example, if I was to see a ceiling lit um, as opposed to the walls lit, I would automatically, in my mind, think that that is a, a perception of a taller place. Uh, so basically, my research is centering around how we can actually sort of quantify, it in an empirical uh, manner, to sort of you know, have these things. Everyone seems to have a great discussion about about what you actually are. Nick Benson's um, the other day was one of the examples he had for the Eliminating Engineering Society, how there the, was the, a the, the gradient of light to view the perception of depth. Now, basically, it's it, concepts like that that I'm really interested in anything else to quantify, so that we can actually then sort of take that and use that in architectural lighting design.
0: That's fantastic. Okay, audience it's your turn to ask questions. Um, One of the trade-offs for this sort of wizard-like room is that we're a little limited with technology, so we don't have a roving microphone, and so I'm going to have to ask you to sort of like use an outdoor voice, and I will probably repeat every question sort of for the benefit of anybody who has some difficulties with hearing. So does anybody have any questions for any of the panelists? Yes.
4: I was thinking a lot about um, natural light and the first speakers um, were concentrating on technology, obviously, um, and, uh, how do you like a space um, where natural light isn't really there because you're inside. But for architects, kids, um, I think that um, natural light mm. and using natural light and how uh, natural light is about, and for example, thick light, and technologically is important so I don't know whether um, the first two speakers got anything to comment on that, but I wonder if any of you have any comments about the use of
5: natural light, and
2: artificial light. Um, natural light is bad. One of the boxes I have empty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm working on the virtual version of dancing after an olive. As we speak. Uh, and that is a very beautiful, very new space that has at least one man window. The installation, the one that I've worked before, inside it is a very large body of water, relative to the size of the room, and the play of light on that body of water. And in fact, down so there sitting up the back there, they spent hours and hours and hours trying to, at this
6: distance, if not predictably start
2: to get a handle on the influence of natural light through what is only a roughly two meters square window and to what degree it's going to completely destroy or very, very drastically compromise what we're trying to do inside that mm-hmm. um, We're probably crazy do that kind of thing without putting it in a black box, room, But uh, we've decided to embrace the challenge. Obviously, as soon as we're talking about a real building, that's an inescapable fact. But again, going back to what we've been saying about the, the,
5: the unity of the design
2: right through those principles. Assuming you are... Of the same thing all the way down the whole process,
6: then the degree
2: of natural life that will inevitably be in the space is something you should embrace and work with. And surely that should inform how that space has been made. And do you want to have the maximum possible compromise between that space in the evening versus that space in the daytime? Or do you want it to feel like the, the light and the space is in the evening is a natural development of the rest of the day life and or even my life. Um, but it's, it's something that
1: you're obviously to start with. So i embrace it as I mean, actually, today we've just um, finished, final um, and the central core of it is a light. So the bathroom actually acts as a light centre. And it's interesting, because it actually bridges those two, two um, domains. In the daytime, as has a very a purpose of bringing the light into the house, and a very, very quality, at night, the theatrical exit, and it's in a very particular way. But I think, you know, in short, there's an extraordinary range to explore between natural light and what that does in the building, and how you can then transfer it at night or in darker times. I've seen somebody was saying the other day they've never seen a house with so many light fittings and so sparsely used. And that is about I'm um, um I've got a sliding wall in my daughter's room and she says that she often sees it slightly sliding over and hand coming in and adjusting the light. <laughs> <laughs> so I am kind of obsessive about it, but, but I'm ultimately fascinated by how Light plays around its form, whether it be in the day or whether it be in the conditions that we're used to. Um, but both have, have their place in the beauty. i me just
0: follow up on that one.
4: Yes. Just, we've just been to the Louis Gallery in Dallas um, in Fort Worth, and that, that was just so, never seen pictures looking so great uh, because the way it looks mm-hmm. like.
5: You picked a a very nice project. Abu Dhabi fits it quite a lot, Jonathan as well. And I know his dilemmas, or you his dilemmas. But don't forget, we have two big problems against us. Alcohol, especially in the climate, where we have 50 degrees Celsius ambient temperature around the city. So you really. Before anything starts, you have to choose that you can extend this temperature. Then you have dust, and then you have longevity of lamps because maintenance is a problem. There are 4,071 HU one metal halide lamps on the field. Imagine if they were walking all the time after that, you would heat So Jonathan was restricted in lots of ways, and that's why the results sometimes are uh, not as marvelous uh, as it should be. But I guess, and you know that, he experimented on every aspect of his lighting. He made mock-ups and he made sure that everything was all right. But in terms of architecture lighting, there are, of course, the standards, glare platform component, etc. <laughs>
6: well, you know, On
0: that point, Joe, you have experience in both architectural and theatrical lighting. and Perhaps you have an impression of the integration of the lighting designer in those two different processes. I mean, I know within architectural lighting it is something that is, is always a source of tension in that a lighting designer tends to be brought in sort of at the end. Here it is. You're welcome to put a few holes in the ceiling and then go away. Um, so, can you compare that, that process and sort of, yeah, the involvement of the lighting designer? Yes, actually, the
4: first version um, of engineering firm that I worked for um, brought me on board, particularly because they were largely one of those features, and they didn't have any with theater background. Um, and so I thought that my features for influenced is what I was meant to be presenting. Um, and I went to a meeting, and I was told that that's not how we do it. Um, which is very much the, obviously, in architectural lighting, uh, like many people would know, uh, a lot of the time you sit down with the architect, and the architect tells you how they want to build English, and then you go away and, and make it happen. And, I was like, well, in theatre, it. you know, you're considered a we obviously considered a designer in architecture, but our interpretation of what a designer actually is is someone with a huge input on the actual process. And as we said, um, the earlier that you're on board with the actual design concept, the better the life thing in a theatrical environment will end up. I've certainly been involved with the theatrical uh, productions where they think they can sort of stick you on come I in at the very end and then wonder why everything's not as, as brilliant as you know, they would imagined. Because it is very much a collaborative process, um, but as theatrical designer, you put your input in there and that's why here, for example, you do tend to work with the same people because it's, it is very much a, a bond and a, a knowledge of what the others are thinking and how they're approaching um, the design is sort of you know, imagine which is in your head of where the process is going. Um, but yeah, you know, with architectural marketing it's very much. A, and i may not say to all architects so that way. I think as um, the actual influence of into play more and more, then how it will be sort of more acknowledged that if the architecture is sort of um, considered. In relationship to the, the actual capacities that we have of physically lighting building then perhaps we won't have quite um, the difference in the you know, years come, particularly with the new technologies that we've got on board. Um, and things like um, we're obviously lighting buildings with a lot of colour and things these days, which is obviously not acceptable. you know Not so long ago, everyone was horrified with um, which
2: putting any sort of colour on buildings
6: but obviously the has changes. But but on that note,
2: back to my favorite not <laughs> enjoying it next week. Um he you know, moans in one of these interviews the fact that a lot of the instruments that lay on the exterior of the building uh, are exposed, uh, that it was simply impossible to to conceal
6: and even, I mean even if
2: I'm it's a video that I've on the You can see that great effort has been gone to to at least integrate them into the fabric of the structure in the most distinct pleasing way possible. But he talks about how disappointed he is that he wasn't able to consider those like entirely. In the parallel universe, um, we would spend on some projects as much time talking about How to hide the right kind of light to do the job, as we would spend talking about the end result of the not that life to achieve. So, just as another instance of everything achieving for the same goal, that that can only work if it's planned in right from the outset. And I have great sympathy for this man sitting there saying, I did my level best, but actually, I can't hide his life and physically impossible because the space in which they would be hidden is
1: now a complete and now impossible. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on something quite uh, mm-hmm. area and was reminder in the rank showing where you were manipulating the speed at which things were moving. Because I I think that well part of our development is really touched on a great deal, is how do you elicit an, an emotional response from somebody viewing something? And I'm convinced that this is actually through an arrangement of patterns and vibrations that you set up in space. And that can be the alignment and uh, arrangement of the physical objects in the space and the way that light like plays in those objects and it's not a tautology, it's something that I have because you have to, it, it's an instinctual thing about the arrangement of those objects and how it is, that brings about uh, the emotional response. And as a teacher of, of design in the contextual context, that is actually a really, really difficult thing to do. And you have to trust your instinct, and you have to, you have to trust good years of practice to understand that moving this object is slightly in about different literacy and emotional response. But we, we have to do that. That's the journey that we're on. And that is the, the obviously, a, a large component of the, of the actual revolution. But I think those principles apply to all forms of architecture and writing, architecture for development of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I'm fascinated to see you selling to
4: apply. An expression of our state, in terms of how we respond to a vibration, exactly. and it's, it's interesting that my one of my sisters is a cellist,
1: and we have long we have had a long, long time talk about the the similarity between music and uh, form and color. And so she will look at we did a production of but anyway, she will know instinctively that I am on my right track because it's actually intersecting with the, the, the music, but also, in essence, the rhythm and patterns that are set up by the music. But so I think that's a, that's a for me, that's a, a really interesting area of design for us. Exactly. Because it's, a, it is really tricky, tricky to do it, but the payoff is extraordinary. glad you said that
3: because um I, I, I think for, for scientists to be able to actually pinpoint um, onto uh, what is it exactly that, um, what exact what, what elements have to be there to be able just set right the motion or mood or, um, or, or atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, you have the final product. And I think art is actually privileged because you can look at it with your own eyes and your own brain. And we all have similar eyes and similar brains. So, you can verify it based mm-hmm. on your own experience and just safely assume that this is going to be a robust experience just in you. Mm-hmm. I think you can safely assume it's going to be a robust experience. So, the one a i people, again, what is a robust kind of experience? It is, it is a little bit tricky, but I guess you can, and, but for the scientists to be able to understand what is it exactly, we would need to see the rejection.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Because and you never get to see that the art, you just get to see the final painting in the gallery. You don't see like all the variations that have been rejected by the artist. And I think those sort of like, you know, incremental steps in achieving something, you know, emotionally or pleasing sort of like visually are kind of like, necessary for this parametric exploration that scientists kind of have to have in order to be able to get to the answer. But I think your so, your notion about um, uh, importance of of vibrations or changes Critical because uh, the, the brain processes changes. If things don't change, we get bored and we just stop picking you know tune mm-hmm. <laughs> out. Uh, uh, um Just because our survival depends on selecting the right kind of change, right kind of signal. Is it like animated with the rhyme, or friend or, or friend, or mate, or mm-hmm. young food, or poison, or something? So you, you really feel the technical processing changes. If things don't change, the brain comes out. The the cell phone, which is figuratively responding to the onset of the object. shut out, and either the surface or area
4: changes again.
3: So, so we are even a processing patterns. And what we also tend to kind of um, uh, disregard is that objects are multi So the objects and they move, not only do they have a visual signature of change in space in certain amplitude over certain distance, but they have sounds to them. So they have smell. <laughs> so things are multi center and that's why your your sister can tell that yeah, this is matching this particular chord because and there is a match, and everybody will agree at that match. Even babies, that are as young as like two months, five months of age, six months of age, they can match um, high pitch with bright sound with bright and sort of like dark, you know, like low pitch with dark one. So there is healthy sensory matching that, that is just again established because really bright ones are probably smaller objects, they move faster, they produce sort of like certain uh, frequency of vibrations. Uh, dark ones, the, those that are a they're bigger probably, they, they move more slowly, you know, so there are these correspondences that, that again, you know, reflect this sort of like, you know, and we have and we would, well, they would be in the arbitrary at, at, at first, but um, there is this wonderful demonstration that was discovered by the German uh, psychologists in the twentieth century. They would have uh, just this random line which was jagged and random line which was just smooth. And there were two words, one was uh, maluma and one was taquete, And everybody would mention taquete be <laughs> the jacket one and everybody was going all we the like smooth one and you can have many, you know, again arbitrary sort of like, shapes and things, but this sort of like matching the the race of change in different things I think is crucial for um for, this, for the experience the the
6: end.
0: Unfortunately I have to be the wet blanket now and shut down this party. Um, both artists and scientists it turns out have a way of letting time get away from us. And uh, we need to wrap up. Um, jo, is artist-in-residence, is at the Rex cramp Thorne Theatre, and she welcomes visitors. If anybody wants to, it's just like half a block that way, go down and take a peek at what she's working on. She's sort of trying to get some feedback and some visual impressions from a variety of people. I would like to thank all of our panelists. Thank you to the folks with the um, Sydney Idea series. Of course, there's a lot of AV and, you know, set up and all of these things that happen behind the scenes. Um, you know, the rest of us get to swoop in and sort of talk for a little while, but I'm very grateful for everything. Thank you all for coming. Have an excellent evening, and um, I don't know how long they'll be here, but if you want to talk one-on-one with any of our panelists,
6: they're here right now.